Well, uh, let's turn our Bibles to 2 Corinthians. You know, I don't think Pastor Jordan has ever gone till 11.52. Leave it up to me, Pastor Jordan, not only to preach long, but to sing long, right? Here we are. I guess I shouldn't be leading music very often because Pastor Jordan, usually pretty good, man. I'm usually up here by like 11.40. Here I am 10 minutes late, and I have only myself to blame on that one. You know, Pastor Jordan was willing to lead music today, but we were short people. A lot of folks not feeling well had to be uh, home. They were sick. And I said, well, it's probably best anyways, Jordan, since you shaved your beard, that you wouldn't be up in front of people leading anyways. So we stuck him over here by the piano. No, it's okay, Jordan. We love you anyways, man. We don't love you for your beard. So uh, Pastor Jordan, hopefully, will be back to leading music again next week, and I can be back over here singing loudly without a mic. But I'm thankful that to see you guys today, those that could make it, those of you that are not under the weather, continuing our series in 2 Corinthians, but now because I sung long, I had to preach shorter. I'm not sure how I feel about that yet. I'll have to feel, have to, you know, feel about those, those, those emotions later. Uh, chapter 7, verse 1, let's begin. Having, therefore, these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Let's uh, stop here and talk about that word perfecting. That word perfecting, you may think it means perfect, as in sinless. I actually was talking about this during our Bible study this morning at 10 o'clock. That word perfect obviously can mean without sin, but it, it also can mean the idea of complete or mature. And so in this text, we're not saying that you're going to attain sinless holiness. You're not going to attain perfection, no matter what you do this side of heaven. But you can come to a place of holy maturity. You can come to a place of uh, holy strength. And so that's what we're discussing here in verse 1. Talk about perfecting holiness or, or uh, bringing holiness to a place of a, a maturity, of strength, of, fullen, of fullness, to a place where it ought to be in your life at this age. The Apostle Paul, uh, speaking to a church in the New Testament, states, hey, you know, when you should be eating meat, you're still drinking milk spiritually speaking. In a sense of a baby can only drink milk. They can't process any hard foods. As they get older, their body grows. Their body can start to process some of the meats and vegetables and things like that. Uh, But they can't when they're young. And a lot of Christians haven't matured at all. And their heart, their mind, their soul, their spirit can't process hard truths. So when a hard truth is given, uh, you know, if you, give a, if you give a baby, they'll choke on it or they'll spit it out. They'll throw it up. And a lot of Christians, if they're not spiritually mature, they have not perfected in their holiness, grown in their holiness. When truth is given to them, they just can't swallow it. They can't process it. They're going to throw it back up and leave it, metaphorically speaking, in the pulpit, in the pews. And then walk back and say, oh, that was a good service, but you didn't take anything with you. You threw it all up because you were not able to handle the truth of God's word. And so as we gain maturity, as we grow in holiness, our spirits, our souls, we're able to process truths better. And then we can, we can accomplish more for God with the truth that he's given us. Verse 2, receive us, the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthian church. We have wronged no man. We have corrupted no man. We have defrauded no man. I speak not this to condemn you, for I have said before that ye are in our hearts to die and live with you. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote a very hard letter. I've said this many times. I preached through 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul 
didn't have regrets over writing that letter. After all, it was inspired by God. Literally, he told them what God said. But I can tell you, as a pastor, I have said things I knew had to be said to people. I knew it. It was the truth of God's word. They were not living as they should. They were not making choices that were helpful to them or their families. I was giving them scripture, not my opinion. I knew that I was giving them God's truth. It still made me sorrowful to give it. Why? Not because I was sad that they were receiving truth. I was sad I had to give the truth. I was sad they weren't already living the truth. I was sad knowing that this truth was going to hurt them. Parents, you know exactly what I'm saying. How many times have you told your children what they need to hear, but it broke your heart to say it? Because you knew as you said it, it was breaking their heart. You know, a lot of people, they recognize that and are not willing to give the truth because they don't want to experience the sorrow that comes with giving truth. And so a lot of Christians, they'll go through life telling people what they want to hear, not what they need to hear, because that makes everyone happy. Yeah, it will make them happy, and when they're happy, you'll be happy, but no one's better off. Happiness doesn't make you better. It only makes you happy. The problem with happiness is it's not forever. And so if you're going to tell them what makes them happy but not better, tomorrow they're not going to be happy again. They'll have to be told again what makes them happy. And so every day you are only saying what makes them happy, but they're never growing. They're never getting better. It's the idea of a parent who doesn't want to feed their children what's good for them. They feed their children what the child likes. You can do that occasionally. I've done that, right? I'll take my kids to McDonald's. I don't think there's anything on that list. I'm not even sure that your yogurt is good for my kids, but whatever. I will give my kids McDonald's, but I'll tell you this. They're not getting it every meal every day. And of my five kids, I've got one that wishes that was the case. Almost every day, not every bit, pretty close to it. Dad, can we have McDonald's? No, honey, we cannot have McDonald's again. Why? Because I want what's best for my daughter. I want her body to grow, and McDonald's will help it grow, right? But it won't help it grow. (laughs) McDonald's will not do for my daughter what she needs. So I make the hard choices for my daughter and give her what she needs. Spouses... Make the hard choices for your spouse. Look, you're not their mom, you're not their dad, right? But you can't just make your spouse happy all the time. You have to have that conversation at some point that they need to hear. Parents, I recognize our heart is our child's happiness. I get that. That's not evil to want your child to be happy, but I got a better motivation for you. How about you want your child to be successful? Because if it's always about happiness and they never grow, they will always need someone else to bring them happiness. If you help them find success, they don't need you to find happiness anymore because their success will bring them happiness. A lot of parents are like, I'm not sure I like the idea of that. You're saying my child may not need me. That's actually your job. You do realize that, right? Your job is to get your child, some some of you women are scowling at me now, some of you with young children. Your job is to get your child to a point where they do not need you. That's your job. But they can't do that if they don't grow, which means don't give them what they want. Give them what they need. Don't make them happy. Make them successful. And when they have what they need and when they are successful, someday they will walk away and they will find happiness outside of your home. That's okay. That's a beautiful thing. Do you want your child to live in unhappiness their whole life? 
No, I want them to live in my house. Look, you may think you'll, that, you'll be happy with that. You won't be happy with that at some point, okay? Now no one's happy. So let's look into Scripture today. The title of this morning's message is Reconciled in Christ, and I've got 15, 20 minutes top to preach it. That is maybe one of the fastest messages I've preached from this pulpit in this room in many, many years, but I'm going to do my best because, again, I have only myself to blame on this one. So here we go, Reconciled in Christ. You know, the prodigal son is a famous passage. We love it dearly because we all know a prodigal. Some of us were the prodigal. Some in this room are the prodigal. And we all like the idea of a, of a story of redemption, the story of, of the one who was losing, finding a win, uh, the one who was running, coming back home, the one who was rejecting, embracing, right? That just brings us uh, good emotions when we think about the story, which might be why the story, the, the parable of the prodigal son is so well-loved by both saved and unsaved alike, by, by almost every denomination, every religion, uh, they like the story of the prodigal son. It's a beautiful story. It's a story of redemption where a son runs from his father and then recognizes life isn't as good as I thought it was outside of my father's love and returns to his father. That's a beautiful thing. There's a lot in this room who've experienced that. You ran from God and realized, you know what? Uh, what I thought life would be like without God isn't what I thought. I'm going back to God. Oh, praise the Lord, you came back. Some of you are considering, you're on the front side of that. Some of you are considering, you know what, is it really that bad without God? I mean, because it's not really good with God. I mean, life's hard. Uh, God expects a lot of me. I mean, surely it can't be worse away from God. Let me tell you, it can and it will be worse. But I, I can't convince you of that. Some of you will have to learn that the hard way. Some of you young men and young women in this room have already gone down that path. And unfortunately, you'll have to learn from the school of hard knocks. Can't say that I blame you. I did the same thing. <laughs> Who am I to say that that, uh, that may not be what's best for you? Maybe for a time you do need to realize just how bad it is without God. My only suggestion is don't make it longer than it has to be. Whatever you need to realize life out without God is like, uh, if you can learn it in a day, that is the, to the best of your advantage. <laughs> don't make it years. Because for some of you in this room, it's already been years. For some in this room, you've been the prodigal. You have run from God and have been running from God, and you have convinced yourself you are better off. I challenge you to, with your eyes wide open, look at your life and really ask yourself, am I better off right now on my own away from God? The prodigal son came to himself, the Bible says, and he thought about his father's house and what was at his father's house, and he said, I could literally be a servant, a slave for my dad and have a better life as a slave than I do now whereas before I was his child. When he returns, the father does not put him into slavery or servitude. He puts him back in the family, gives him the family ring, and he says, you are my child again. Reconciliation in Christ is a beautiful thing. And I see reconciliation here in this chapter not as obvious as it is in the story of the prodigal son, much more subtle, but the truths here are amazing. In verses 1 through 9, boy, deep awesome truths that I'm going to pull out for you today, give to you in this chapter. So buckle up. Here we go. Three main points, a motivation to reconciliation, an encouragement to reconciliation, and the consequence of reconciliation. Let's look at number one, a motivation in verse one. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved. What promises? Well, 
If you go back to chapter 6, at the end of verse 6, we're told that in verse 18, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. That having the promises that God wants to be your father, that God wants to save you from your sins, and once saved, to place you into his family, having the promises that God has an awesome eternal future in store for you, and an awesome mortal future. Not awesome as in everything will be awesome, but awesome that your life will have purpose to fulfill the will of an awesome God. Look, not every day is going to be great, but every day you'll serve it for a great God. Not every day you're going to accomplish some great thing, but every day you'll accomplish something for a great God. For me, that's awesome. I don't need to climb a mountain every day to feel fulfilled. I don't need to uh, conquer uh, great, uh, great hardships every day to feel fulfilled. My motivation, my fulfillment comes from knowing that what I do, I do because of who God is and what he already did for me. Letter A. Spiritual reconciliation doesn't begin with our love for God but rather his love for us. Do you have a prodigal in your life? Do you know a prodigal? Are you a prodigal? Stop trying to get them to love God. You cannot make them love God. There's no pill that they swallow and the love of God flourishes in their heart. Hey, even reading the Bible isn't going to instill love in their heart for God. You can take them to Meriden Hills. You can take them to another church. And you can hope, well, if they sing songs, if they hear the songs, maybe they'll start loving God. Love for God doesn't begin with them. Love for God begins with him. You see, the Bible says God loved us first. The Bible says God sought us as God seeks all the lost, right? Christ came to seek and to save the lost. Christ said it's not his will that any should perish. Did you know that God seeks out every soul? Not just yours, not just mine, not just the special, not just the unique or the called. God seeks all. Unfortunately, not all respond. But they began with him and his seeking. It began with him and his loving. It began with him and his death. Our salvation didn't start with us. Our salvation started with God, and we responded to what he did in our lives, calling us to repentance, loving us to repentance. And then our response was, you know what? God loved me so much. How could I not but love him? I believe that one of the best ways to bring a prodigal back to God is to not beat them into submission. A prodigal will have none of that. They will run from you. It is not to guilt them into obedience. A prodigal doesn't want guilt. A prodigal already has so much guilt that any guilt you pile on top, you will become the enemy. A prodigal needs to know there is something better back home. His name is Christ. A prodigal needs to know that he or she is loved by Christ. That does not mean Christ is okay with their sin. It does not mean Christ is okay with their choices. It means that Christ loves them whether they sin or not. No matter what choices, a prodigal needs to know that. And then you just give God time, and you give his love time to help the prodigal respond back to that love. Stop trying to get the prodigal to start the process. And if I were you, I would pray, God, 
Let them see your love every day. Let them see it in me. Let them see it in others. Don't let them have a living moment of a day where they have not experienced your love at least once in that day, in some form. That is their best chance of success. He says in verse 1, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Because of who God is, because of what God did, because of how God loves, that's my motivation for wanting to run back to him. Letter B, sin does not only affect our bodies, but also our souls. Cleansing our flesh, uh, cleansing ourselves from, from the filthiness of the flesh and the spirit. You can help a, a prodigal recognize this. They probably already know it. Our culture calls it mental health. Uh, they may not know why they are struggling with mental health. The Bible tells us <laughs> sin doesn't just affect how you feel uh, on the outside. It definitely can. You know, there are certain sins, moral sins, that, that will bring disease into your life, that will, that will bring um, illnesses and sicknesses into your life and, and really kill you eventually. There are sins that will do that. But sins don't just affect the physical. We're told about the flesh and the spirit. Our sins affect the emotional, the spiritual the mental state. I am not telling you that someone who struggles with mental health is struggling with sin. I am saying that someone who struggles with sin is struggling with mental health. Meaning, there, there are other reasons for mental health. All right? I'm not saying that's the only reason. There are other reasons why you might be struggling with mental health apart from sin. It could be uh, a lack of wisdom, a lack of knowledge. It could be choices other people have made that affect you. I get all that. It could be physical. You could, be, you could have been born with a condition, uh, a chemical imbalance that affects your mental health. I get all that. It could be trauma. But, so I'm not saying look at someone with mental health and they're living in sin. They're a prodigal. No, no, no. That's not the case. But I am saying this. If they are running from God... To some degree, they are struggling with mental health. They may not show it to you. You may not see it, but it is definitely there. Because our sin, our rebellion, our rejection of God will affect our spiritual and emotional state. Cleanse ourselves of the filthiness of the flesh and the spirit because it affects both. And then let us see spiritual growth is found through the fear of the Lord inward, not physical change outward. Looking at verse number one, at the end, perfecting or maturing or bringing to fruition or to a stronger place, holiness in the fear of the Lord. How many churches, once someone gets saved, do they say, all right, cut your hair, here's the clothes you should wear, here's the Bible, and we'll see you every time the doors are open? A lot. How many churches have expectations, outward expectations for those who claim to be followers of God? A lot. Did you know there are churches out there where uh, everyone would look like Pastor Jordan because you're not allowed to have facial hair in church? Did you know that? Did you know there are churches where uh, every woman would be wearing a skirt or a dress? Did you know that? Did you know there are churches where if you don't come when the doors are open, your name would be called out publicly? Did you know that? Did you know that the pastor from the pulpit will call out the name and say, well, I I thought they were saved. Maybe they're not because you missed one Sunday. Did you know that? There's churches like that. There are churches that would, if you miss two or three Sundays, I mean, they'll literally like cut you off and you're like anathema to them because you missed a few Sundays. There are churches like that. Because these churches and these Christians believe that true growth comes from what we do, from the things that we accomplish, from the things we wear or don't wear, how we look or don't look. They think it's outward. You know who else thought that? The Pharisees thought that. Imagine that. 
The religious leaders of Christ's day thought the same exact thing. They thought there's no way you could be a good person if you don't look like us. There's no way you could be a Christian if you don't act like us. And Christ said, you got a bunch of rotten bones living inside of you. He said, when you have a disciple, when you train someone, they're twice the servant of the devil than you were. Christ was not impressed with any form of outward conformity to religion. You know what Christ wanted? Christ wanted the inward change. Look, I'm not saying there won't be outward change. I'm not saying there won't be certain things we'll stop doing and certain things we'll start doing. I'm not saying that even how we dress might in some way reflect some of that changed mindset and changed heart. I'm sure that it will. But those things are only an outward evidence of what's actually happening in here. Otherwise, you're just a great actor. You're just faking it, and you will feel dead inside dead men's bones, right? You'll feel dead inside, but look great on the outside. I'd rather have someone look like death on the outside and have the joy of the Lord on the inside. Much rather that than someone look like uh, uh, life on the inside, but death feeling death on the inside. So Christians, stop faking it. This is not a church you need to fake it at. It is okay to look rough. It's okay for people who have just got saved to look rough. Hey, it's okay for somebody who's been saved five, seven years to look rough. Let's address the heart. And let's recognize it's an inward decision that brings out a, a life of perfect holiness. Not without sin holiness, but mature holiness. Strong holiness. It is an inward decision of the fear of God. But as I started with letter A, the fear of God is only going to be response. I believe true fear of the Lord is going to be response once you recognize that God loves you. We're not talking about being afraid of God. We are talking about an honor, a respect, a worship of, an uplifting of God that you gain once you realize how much God loves you. Your motivation. What's the motivation for the prodigal? It cannot be guilt. What's the motivation for the prodigal? It cannot be uh, to maintain a relationship with you. It cannot be to, to in some way, uh, please the Lord. The prodigal doesn't really care. The motivation for the prodigal has to be they are loved. They are loved. Love the prodigal. Remind them every time you see them, God loves the prodigal. And you'll see a whole lot more prodigals running back to God. Number two, an encouragement to reconciliation, number two, verse two. Receive us, we have wronged no man, we have corrupted no man, we have defrauded no man. I speak not this to condemn you, but I have said this before, that ye are in our hearts to die and live with you. The apostle Paul says, I'm willing to die for you, man. I'm willing to live for you and die for you, right? How many people have said, oh, I'd die for you? No, you wouldn't, you don't even live for me. I would give my life for you. No, you don't, you don't even give your life for me now when I need you, like today you're not here. Why would I believe you'd be there tomorrow? The apostle Paul says, I'll do both. I've already done one. I've been living for you. And if it comes to it, I would die for you. That's believable because he's been living for them. An encouragement to reconciliation. The prodigal needs people in their life who love them and love God. Now, I'm going to warn you, parents, before we go any further. I have no problem connecting with prodigals. doesn't bother me one bit. There's no way they're going to influence me. I am confident in my love for God. And I've, I've had enough connections and relationships with people who've had made some very bad choices. There is no way at all they're going to change my view, my connection with God. Not going to happen. But I'll tell you this, parents. There's also no way 
my child is going to be a missionary to prodigals because their holiness has not been perfected yet. They have not grown to the level of strength that I have. And I, my child is not going to be a missionary to the world. My child is a child. My child's job right now is to grow. My child's job is to grow closer to the Lord. So as I preach to this next point, don't be thinking that if you send your kids to the prodigal, the prodigal will come back. No, your kids will not come back. That will mostly is what's going to happen. The prodigal will take your kids nine times out of ten, if not more. Once your child comes to a place of mature holiness, then, then and only then, can God use them to encourage the prodigal. Otherwise, the prodigal will encourage them away from God. Be very careful of that. So letter A. God uses the sacrificial love of his children to encourage the reconciliation of the prodigal. Verse 3, I speak not this to condemn you, for I have said before that, that ye are in our hearts to die and to live with you. Verse 7, and not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you when he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoice the more. All right. The Apostle Paul says, I sent Titus with 1 Corinthians, and Titus came back and told me that you were brokenhearted, that you repented. Titus informed me that you changed, that you came back to the Lord. Titus told me that you returned to God and, and, and uh, raw, righted the wrongs that were going on in your church. And he gives the reason right here in verse 7. Did you catch it? He said, your mourning, and it implies very strongly, they felt bad that they had wronged God, yes, but also that they had wronged Paul. Why? Because Paul loved them and they knew it. Paul wrote some very hard truths to this church, but Paul's love was stronger than those truths. Paul's love was longer than those truths. Paul had shown them love longer than he had shown them, you might say, a correction. An encouragement to the prodigal, an encouragement to reconciliation is God often uses people who are strong in their own faith, strong in their own love for God, to encourage the prodigal and remind them you are loved by God and by me. And God used Paul to bring a church of prodigals. Guys, it wasn't one. The Corinthian church in mass was full of prodigals. And Paul didn't even go to them. The guy wrote a letter to them. And it was a letter, yes, inspired letter, yes. But God used the inspired letter of one man, Paul, to bring a church of prodigals back to God. That's how powerful a loving, unconditional, loving relationship is. So God uses the sacrificial love of his children to encourage reconciliation. Letter B, God uses the powerful truth of his word to encourage reconciliation. Verse 4, great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort. All right, great is my boldness of speech, meaning the apostle Paul said, I, I didn't hold anything back. I said it like it was. I told you what you needed to hear. And he talks later in this passage, it was hard. I sorrow, but I didn't sorrow, meaning I felt bad, but I didn't feel bad, right? Like it hurt me, but not really because I know you needed to hear it kind of thing, right? Apostle Paul says, look, I told you something that was very hard for me to say and something that was very hard for you to hear. It was the truth. I told you the truth. You see, a lot of Christians, it's easy for them to love the prodigal. What's hard for them is to give the truth. 
and other Christians, it's easy to give the truth. It's hard to love. The prodigal needs both. If you're only giving love, then you are just enabling the prodigal. If you only give truth, you are pushing them away. If you are giving them love with truth, the prodigal now knows they have someone that loves them back there, and they have direction on how to get there, the truth. Because if you just love them where they're at, there's no need for them to leave, and they will remain the prodigal. Truth is a great encouragement when given in love by someone who's shown love. Letter C, when we have lost hope for the prodigal's reconciliation, we have lost the opportunity to encourage their reconciliation. Look at verse 4 again. In chapter 7, verse 4, in the middle, he says, great is my glorying of you. Now, the Apostle Paul isn't lying. How do we know that? It's inspired text, so we know he's telling the truth. He's telling the Corinthians how he really feels. And he says, guys, you'll never know how much I brag about you. Now, this is the Corinthian church, pretty messed up, full of prodigals. He says, I was glorying in you. I talk about you all the time. I feel like only a parent can truly understand how Paul feels. As parents, our kids make mistakes constantly. But parents don't see the mistakes in our kids, do we? I mean, sometimes we do. I get that. But we're the ones, we're the ones that say, but he's a good kid. That's the right of a parent to think that. Okay, that's your right. We'll never let anyone tell you otherwise. You have the right to, to hope for and believe the best about your child, even when they're little stinkers. And the apostle Paul said to the Corinthian church, you guys are a bunch of stinkers, man. You guys, rebellion, prodigal, running from God. But I still love you. I still want the best for you, and I still believe the best for you. And I'm over here still glorying in you and bragging on you. It doesn't get better than that, folks. To have someone in your life who even when you messed up, still sees the good. A prodigal needs that. They got to be told how, what, what corrections are made. They got to be given the truth by someone who loves them, but they also have to know that the person who's giving them the truth believes better of them. Do you? Could it be the prodigals in your life you haven't seen reconciliation because you haven't been loving them? Could it be because you haven't been giving them the truth? Could it be you've been giving them love and truth, but you have no hope for their future? And the prodigal sees the lack of hope in your life. They see that in you. They see those dead eyes. Love them, give them truth, believe they can do better. And then finally, the consequences of reconciliation. Verse 5, for when we were come into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on the every side without were fightings within, were fears. Nevertheless, God, that comforteth those that are cast down, comforted us. How? By the letter of Titus, verse 7, where Titus came back and said you had repented. Verse 8, for though I made your made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. All right, letter A. When a soul is reconciled to God, joy is found in both heaven and his church. What's the consequence of a prodigal returning to God? The angels rejoice, but they're not the only ones rejoicing, are they? The ones who love that prodigal are also rejoicing. And it should be his church. We need to love the prodigal. And that should be so obvious to the prodigal because when one of their own returns back to God, we're literally going crazy. And the prodigals who don't return says, wow, I mean, like they're having a welcome celebration back there in Meriden Hills because the prodigal returned. 
I wonder if they do that for me. You better believe we would. Oh, yeah. I'll tell you this, Christian. It may break your heart to hear it, but I'm going to tell you. I have spoken with prodigals who've told me I would never go back to the church I came from. Why? I know how they treated me on my way out. I can only assume they'll treat me on my way back in the same way. I have no interest in going back to that. I'm not saying throw a party and rejoice with the prodigal on their way out. But I'm saying the prodigal needs to know they're loved on their way out so that they can assume rightfully so they'll be loved on their way back in, not rejected on their way back in. Too many prodigals have no desire to return to God's people because of how God's people treated them on the way out. Do not enable them in their sin. Do not justify their sin. Do not push them towards sin, but love them in spite of their sin and let them know your love is right here when they get back. Letter B. The sorrow, pain, and guilt of the prodigal is replaced with joy and peace through reconciliation. Verse 8, he says, For though I made you sorry with the letter, I do not repent, though I did repent, for I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. You read it, and you were sorrowful. Verse 9, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance, for you were made sorry after a godly manner. Your sorrow did not remain. Your sorrow, your guilt was replaced with joy and happiness when you accepted the truth and applied the truth and came back to God. You are not living in guilt any longer. That's a consequence of the prodigal's return. The prodigal no longer needs to live in regret and guilt. And then letter C. Truth will not damage those who choose to accept and apply it. It will not damage those who choose to accept and apply it. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that same epistle made you sorry for a season. Those who reject truth will always be hurt by it. I'm not here to preach on things outside of this text, but there are many, many truths in Scripture that offend, literally offend, and cause physical illness Like, they literally get sick, people in the world, when they hear certain truths taught. Like, it makes them ill. And it will continue to do so for as long as they reject it. Which, for some, will be their entire life. But once truth is accepted, that feeling of physical illness when the truth is given is replaced with peace and joy. Because the truth is no longer against them, And they are no longer against the truth. They've accepted the truth. They've embraced the truth. They've been changed by the truth. And the truth now brings them joy as it does to you in this room. Folks, remember, the prodigal right now, if they're rejecting the truth, it hurts them. It makes them mad. It makes them sad. It makes them sick. And it will for as long as they reject it. And so give them truth, but give them love. And have hope that they can return and will return if they see that hope in your eyes. If they see that love in your actions, they are more likely to listen to the truth and recognize it is their way back to God. Let's pray.